this is it. This is the Guru is Dead podcast. And I am your host, Marcus Wu. In my first podcast ever, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Ryan Nakade, age 26. He's a philosopher, rapper, avid gardener, and a whiz at Vedic astrology. I first met Ryan at a day of mindfulness at a Buddhist temple on the Big Island of Hawaii, where he was asked to give a talk about meditation. At the time, he was just 22 years old and looked even younger. And I thought, who the heck is this kid? We became fast friends, and I consider Ryan among the most awake people that I know, regardless of age. Join us for this conversation on growing up the son of a Buddhist minister in Hawaii, going to a spiritual college, finding wisdom through deepening phases of identity dissolution, and the importance of developing character alongside consciousness. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And before that, I'll play a clip of some of Ryan's philosophy raps. Studied philosophy from Plato to Socrates. Call me Dr. G. I'm hip hop's Hippocrates. The purpose of life to the birth of democracy. Truth cuts through all hypocrisy. The wisdom of the ancients of the axial age paved the way for the future. Turned history's page. Plato and Aristotle, Democritus and Socrates, Homer and Thales, Pythagoras and Sophocles. Literature, art, science, and Greek tragedies. Questions they were asking from Athens Academy. What is universal and what is reality? What are the virtues and what is a fallacy? What is in the mind and what is matter? What are Plato's forms and his universal patterns? What is of this world and what is divine? The truth of reality so sublime. So I kind of want to talk about you a little bit and kind of have our listeners understand your path. Um, and so, so you grew up in a Buddhist monastery in Hawaii. So walk us through what that was like for you and how um, that kind of informed your, your worldview. Yeah, sure. So I, I, I don't really know the technical terms, but I mean, I usually say Buddhist temple because sometimes when you say monastery, people, people assume that there are like resident monks or nuns who live there, uh, which, which, we didn't, which we didn't have. But I guess, I don't know, monastery, temple, whatever, church. Um, and I, I went to the temple when I was starting from like four or five years old when my family first uh, moved to Hawaii from California. And my mom grew up going to Daifukuji as a child. Then the resident minister who was training her left in 2004. So when I was like 12 years old, she, um, is that right? Is that, yeah, jeez. When I was like 12 or 13, we moved into the temple where my mom took over full-time as a minister. And honestly, for me, there, there, there were some advantages and there were some disadvantages. I think the disadvantages were more obvious to me early on because it was a very public life. And as the, as the son of the minister, resident minister, you, there are certain expectations of you, <clears throat> especially things like helping out at public events, setting up tables and chairs, answering the phone, answering the doorbell. And you know, I'm like, I, I was a teenager and I don't want to do any of that kind of thing. I don't want to see anyone. I was, you know, I was shy. I was reclusive. I was angry at the world. I had dropped out of high school. I felt like my public reputation was permanently tarnished. I don't want to have anything to do with, <laughs> with uh, have any public face at all. But one, one interesting thing about that was li- living in the Buddhist temple and growing up there. Everyone in the community knows Daifukuji. Everyone, even if they just move there, will see the temple as they drive past it in, in Honalo. So everyone, everyone has that frame of reference, that point of reference established. And for me, that was really helpful because 
it actually really mitigated some like peer pressure for you know you want to go you want you know hey ryan you want to go and do alcohol or drugs or whatever people wouldn't like i remember one time i was at a party and someone offered me like to smoke marijuana and a whole bunch of my friends says oh no don't offer that to him he's buddhist he lives at the temple <laughs> so so i so that was really interesting how because everyone knew that no one would try to coax me into, you know going down a bad path or anything and that was kind of always part of my identity not only part of my personal identity but the identity of how other people saw me it was part of my intersubjective identity and so that prevented a lot of weird things from happening <laughs> well on the other hand did you, did you find that limiting of people like assumed they knew who you were and therefore would only give you a you know they, they wouldn't say things around you or they would say oh no this is this type of person so he's going to do this and, you know did that do you feel like that was limiting in any way that the whole community kind of assumed things about I, you yeah, I didn't find it limiting personally because I wasn't interested in those things anyway. I was actually grateful that I didn't have to explain why I didn't want to smoke or drink, or I didn't have to spend any energy personally fighting that off because everyone would do it for me. No one would even offer me anything. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very convenient. It was very convenient. <laughs> um, and then, but then when I grew older and, and came back from college, it was also really it was great to be have that community there, um, both in terms of the. Kind of strategic positioning of it in terms of the networks that are associated with it, the amount of wonderful people that the temple attracts, that meeting friends, having people to discuss Buddhist or philosophical spiritual ideas with. Um, it, it just is a great environment. People are serving, you know, if you want to talk about bring spiral dynamics into this, it, they have people at every level from purple, who you know, old time Japanese coffee farmers who believe in ghosts and spirits and, and traditional stories all the way up to postmodern <laughs> retired college professors. So it spans the entire spectrum of human development and everyone gets along nicely. And, and, and um, it's always going to be very near and dear to my heart. And I'm very grateful that I was able to grow up in that kind of environment. Yeah. So, so growing up, I mean, I mean, maybe people assume you would just be spiritual because you lived in Buddhist temple, but was there a moment when you were a kid where you're like, Oh, I actually am interested in this stuff or this, there's something to it. Or were you kind of just like, was that always a part of you or was there a moment where you decided or understood something different about yourself? That's a great question. I think what was a blessing was when I started, to, when I dropped out of high school when I was 14, I went to public high school. It was, I couldn't handle it. Too sensitive, too overwhelmed. There were fights every day. Um, I had kind of an existential identity crisis at, uh, when I was like 14 or 15 years old. And what do you do when you have a spiritual identity crisis? Well, you can, well, some, you know, oftentimes people turn to religion. And there was a religion right there that could frame what I was experiencing. And so immediately, I, because I had that as a resource, that the, the tradition and the temple and the community as a resource, I think it really helped to, to get me on a kind of spiritual path, so to speak, more quickly, much more quickly and much more easily with a lot more support and acknowledgement of what I was going through than if I had grown up in a purely secular, normal environment. So that was so that was really helpful. So I, I would say that the own, my own interest in spirituality awakened independently of my upbringing. But then once that occurred, I immediately resourced all of the you know books in the library and everyone around me, and started going to meditation. And it was very easy to make that transition because of the environment that I grew up in. Hmm, interesting. So so looking back on it now, I mean you're 26 now. Um, do you do you think they were independent or you think okay well maybe you know he sees were planted when i was very young and i didn't realize it 
you know, and it kind of manifested at 13 or 14. And I was kind of ready for it in the right place. Or, or I mean, how do you, how do, how do you kind of think about it now? It's, you know, it's, it's always hard to tell, right? It's always, it's always hard to tell what, what things are connected. But when I was, I really became, I would say, really consciously interested in spirituality when I was 16. But I started with more kind of like a new age spirituality. And that was really what I needed. Uh, a lot of emphasis on like positive thinking and that kind of thing. So if, we, if I went straight to Zen's kind of existential dissolution of identity and self, I don't think that would, I think it would have been too radical. But I went to the New Age spirituality first, and I didn't really get into the more Buddhist section till I was about 17 or 18. Um, so I, I would say that I kind of found my way thereafter, bumbling about for a while in other, in other forms of spirituality. And, and, you know, I guess oftentimes they talk about the door to the spiritual path. I mean, and one big one, obviously, is, is one through suffering. Um, you know, others find through, you know, just insight or they have a, a spontaneous awakening or through joy. Um, you know, if you had to kind of put in that, that context, what was your, your door, you know, when you were 16 or to, to actually, you know, going deeper in your spirituality? Oh, it was definitely suffering, 100%. I, I was always I always get really annoyed where people are like, oh, I, I had this really incredible spiritual experience, you know, and I merged into the cosmos and I was playing the divine love. I'm just like, that never happened to me once. Like nothing. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, definitely definitely the uh, I think the Buddhist emphasis on suffering and, and overcoming suffering that, that kind of framework to look at reality resonated with me a lot. And I think it will always resonate with me for much of my life, given my propensity to kind of more melancholic types of introspection yeah so so you mentioned a few kind of i don't know you call them spiritual phases so you started kind of with new age and then came to buddhism and then are, are there other phases you went through um up to up until the present day in terms of how you thought about spirituality or your own evolution sure yeah well it, well i was thinking about this the other day when i went to college when i went to ananda college and there it was quite a it was quite a contrast because everyone there always talks about god 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 <laughs> g word g word g word all the time love god love god and i i felt that it was it was a very the other thing they all talked about was the guru of course attunement to the guru yogananda was a guru and he's dead so it was you know attunement to the picture of yogananda and i found i found that to be really weird and bizarre but I, just that approach. I, I didn't understand the kind of Western or even, I mean, Hindu, but in this case, the way that they're talking about it. They had Jesus on the altar too. So it was kind of like a very Western framework that they adopted yoga teachings in. The kind of monotheistic Judeo-Christian framework, it was very alien to me, very far. I didn't understand it at all. But I think it planted the seed for kind of a theistic orientation of spirituality to complement the more non-dual or phenomenological tradition of buddhism and and meditation and i had a very i think in college i tried to adopt the theistic worldview artificially because everyone else was reading i'm like I, I guess i might as well try it and that's peer pressure that, that was your peer pressure that, yeah exactly right <laughs> I, I couldn't have the community build me out it was a god peer pressure <laughs> so i said yeah i'm gonna adopt this god thing and, and see where it takes me and i think my you know i was 18 and 19 at the time and my theistic uh, seeds that were planted were very rudimentary and very unrefined, undeveloped. And so I kind of dropped it, I think, after several years of trying to pray or anything that's associated with, you know, <laughs> uh, Western theistic traditions. But 
over time, I, I, it kind of came back to me in a more refined way, more through like um, Christian existentialism or theology or philosophy of religion. And I'm grateful that I, I got to go through that experience because the seeds were planted and now I, I, it's become a more intimate part of my spiritual life along with more traditional, you know, like non-dual Dzogchen style of meditation and contemplation. Yeah. So, so when you applied and and for Ananda College, was that something you you consciously thought about? It's like, oh, okay, this more theistic view that I'm kind of interested in that, exploring that more because it's different from what I grew up with, or did that kind of just happen? I mean, was that a conscious decision to to you know go that direction? It was. Yeah, it was a kind. Of, I, I still remember. I'm like, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna try to believe in God. <laughs> the God. Totally, yeah. Got to be something to it. it. Doesn't doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> So and and then in in college, what did you study? I studied uh, all kinds of subjects you can waste your money on. Um, but my major was in therapeutic yoga and traditional Eastern medicine. So it was my my like undergraduate like capstone project or paper was integrating Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and Tibetan medicine. Nice, nice. And so after you graduated, um, I mean, I I I, I guess what's the I mean, the people that go there, is it kind of like, are they devotees of, of Ananda already? Are they kind of exploring? Are they, you know, I don't know. Because it seems like a spiritual college would be like, the, the goal after four years is to be like enlightened or something. Like, what was the, I mean, how do you, <laughs> what is the context of that kind of um, schooling? And, and what do you think, what directions do people go after that? No, that was that was actually a, a big, I don't really know, because that was that was a big issue that everyone was trying to discuss the whole time I was there. You know what? What's the identity of the college? How much Ananda spirituality should we embrace? How ecumenical should we be? How much should we just go completely try to be like more secular? How much you know? And there was kind of a natural, I guess, in some ways, kind of a division or conflict between some of the students. There were Ananda devotees who found Ananda first and then went to the college because they were young and didn't have a college degree, and other students were not interested in that at all. And there was kind of a natural kind of sometimes there was a kind of tension there. And that kind of floated somewhere in the middle. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that was one of the reasons why the college closed. They could never quite find their identity and what they wanted to be and, and what they wanted to provide to students. So it was never really settled. I see, I see, I see. And so after you left Ananda, you know, what, what's kind of been your, your spiritual evolution since then? I would say it's been mostly focused on growing up. Um, and, and finding my way in the real world. And I quickly realized when I got the job at the Living History Museum, people don't care about what dosha you are or what astrological sign you are. <laughs> so, so all of my energy went to focusing on real world issues that I can relate to people. Um, so I would say a lot of emphasis on growing up and fundamentally just letting go and letting my identity go kaputs. I, I would say that that would be probably the the main core of it is just completely surrendering and and seeing through my false identity and bad and, and kind of insincere intentions. I, I would also say that one of the things that um, I was able to carry with me from Ananda, the, the God view of reality, this is, this is the mistake that I made in trying to rudimentary, rudimentarily apply God kind of in a um, in an almost amber way, right? Like, how do I, the, the question I always had was like, people are talking about God, people are talking about loving God, having a relationship with God. 
being devoted, you know, devotion was a huge word they dropped. I, I, I just, what the hell is devotion? You know, I was like looking up in the dictionary. And, and what I, my problem when I was at Ananda was if I think about God, right, I'm thinking about a concept in my head. I'm not being present. I'm not being mindful. I'm still thinking. It's impossible to get past thinking. And in Zen, there's a great phrase. In, in Zen, we do not think about God and scrub the potatoes. We just scrub the potatoes. And that always made the most sense to me. Why would I want to think about anything? I could be thinking about McDonald's, right? I mean, I could be thinking about Avengers Infinity War, thinking about God. It's all, it's all the same thing. Right? I mean, Thor, I, you know, whatever. But it's like, it, it doesn't matter the content of the thought. I'm still thinking. So what, what, good is it, what good is it if I think about God or I think about Thanos? So, or Captain America. <laughs> so, but what I discovered as I matured, I would say, I, I did, this didn't really hit me until I was like 23 or 24, so several years after I left, was that the, the experience of God or the numinous or the infinite or the sacred or the holy is not something that you experience by thinking, right? It's something that's spontaneously experienced when you truly have faith and let go. And for me, part of meditation practice has been about of course in the in the eastern traditions there's a lot of emphasis placed on awareness mindfulness and the phenomenology of mental content but there isn't necessarily a lot of emphasis except in the bhakti hindu tradition right of like the heart and love and devotion to a transcendental object and for me the experience of love devotion surrender rapture comes when in the moment in which you surrender your identity. So my encounter with the with the phenomena that I would label with the word God occurs, as I like to think about it, it occurs at the very edge of my identity. It, it occurs in the reality that is beyond myself, whatever that reality is. It kind of exists when my finite and relative ego self collides with the absolute and re infinite reality that's just beyond my ego self, right? There's that, there's that very uh, visceral or palpable experience of something sacred and something numinous. And the devotion to that experience comes with faith and surrendering. So once again, it's not something that I can think about or it's, that's not something that I believe in, in the positive. It's when you completely let go and completely surrender. It's in that moment of surrender that you get to experience something very sacred and something very spiritual. And I think what, one of the things that I like to, I think, would, I would like to see emphasized more. I think Adyashanti was starting to do this with his writings on Jesus and so forth, was um, a lot of the non-dual teachers, one of their core messages is that that spark of awareness, the witness consciousness, right? The witness is always available. No matter what you're going through, the capacity to observe and witness experience is always available to you. I think that's generally a good teaching. But if there is like some awful trap, like let's say that your child, you, you witness your child get run over by a bus, the teaching, the, the non-dual awareness is always present. It's not quite applicable in that time, right? There, that's when you turn to something like God. That's where you turn to something like devotion to the infinite and the total faith to just surrender completely. And the energy and the, you know, the Kyokagar, just the subjective intensity and emotional uh, juice of that experience the existential weight of that experience is the only thing that can kind of carry through, carry you through something as difficult and traumatizing as that experience. And I think that for me, I would say that the experience of faith, the experience of devotional opening and uh, through letting go is always available. 
and that is the bridge to get you to the non-dual state. But if I'm you know, playing video games on my couch, I can't just immediately go to that to the non-dual state that easily. So sometimes you have to go through the actual uh, yeah, existential experience of surrender to get there. Yeah, no, I think that's really, I mean, I never heard you actually describe it in that way. So um, I think that was really uh, clear um, and kind of shows in some sense sort of the synthesis of you know the god aspects and the devotion aspects of what you learned in ananda and then kind of the non-dual stuff um you learned you know prior to that with buddhism and zen kind of evolving um in a, a really applied and sort of direct way let's go let's go back a little bit because you mentioned this thing about growing up and maybe our listeners you know understand what that means but not in the context that you actually meant mean it in um so maybe could you explain that the, the growing up aspect a little more yeah yeah it's 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 interesting i've never actually really thought about what that is like to give a definition of what that means it, it's i think it's it's something very intuitive I, I i think that you know you could use the term growing up in the wilburian sense contrasted to waking up or cleaning up but i also mean growing up just in the most generic sense of the term what is it what does it mean to become a more mature and grounded adult with responsibilities with a sense of duty being able to relate to people professionally being professional to me. All of these things are aspects of growing up and becoming a more mature adult. Uh, part, of, part of that to me, it includes character development too. And in some ways, growing up is, is the refinement of your ego structure. So the Eastern waking up path, it, the emphasis is on the dissolution of your ego structure, of your egoic sense of self. But the the more Western psychological growing up is about refining the ego that does that is needed to a degree to function in the relative world of human existence, uh, at least until the whole thing goes bye-bye. But until then, I still need to develop that and, and refine that. So I think a lot of the implications of growing up have to do with my identity or my how I conduct myself as an adult in relation to other people. So waking up, I think, can be something experienced purely, you know, on the meditation cushion, in the own intimacy of your subjective moment-to-moment -moment awareness and experience. It's it's more of a distinctly phenomenological uh, categorization, whereas growing up has more social implications, um, interpersonal implications, professional implications. Just what kind of life do you want to live as an adult, and accepting the the duty of things, right? Like I have to go and renew my car registration and get smog tested. I don't want to do that, but you just got to do it growing up. <laughs> so so I, I, kinda, I actually want to focus back on this word you said about talking about character um, and developing your own character, refining your character. Was that something you intuitively felt after coming out of college or was that, I mean, where did that um, that come from? And, and well, that, and I think there's a lot of discussion today um, about, you know, how important character is given the, the leaders that we have in our world today. Um, and, and where the emphasis should really be more on character de development versus intelligence or raw intelligence or skills or what have you. But without kind of that base, basic and, and grounded character, um, we're not going to have, um, you know, great leaders. I, I think that well, one of the first things that hit me when I went to Ananda when I was 18, before I knew about, before I really thought about character or what I like to call character versus consciousness, I knew about waking up and growing up. One of the things that hit me was I went with the 
subconscious assumption that all the students who arrive at this college must be really mature and grown up because they're all interested in spirituality and waking up. At least that's what they said they were interested in. Uh, lo and behold, that was not the case, right? You can be very interested in, in spirituality and have all kind of mystical experiences, either through meditating or doing ayahuasca or what have you, and you can still act like an immature child. It's almost like they're completely different axes or paths of development, and they don't necessarily uh, grow together simultaneously. And so that kind of planted this seed of interest in, like, hmm, well, you know, what is this character consciousness distinction here? There, there, they definitely, there definitely needs to be some emphasis placed on how to develop character. And this is something that was, I, I call this a modern crisis in spirituality, when you, and, and also just in philosophy in general. When you look at the entire history of Western philosophy, or even, even Eastern too, Axial Age philosophies, right? You have Confucius and Lao Tzu and Buddha in the, in the East. In the West, you have Aristotle and virtue ethics, you know, Plato and Socrates, and you have the Stoics. And all of these pre-modern Axial Age philosophies were centered around two questions, really, in my opinion. How do, what are the virtues? Like, how do you become a more virtuous human being? And what is the good life? How do you live the good life? And, and how is being a more virtuous person and developing your character conducive to living the good life? This was a central question of pre-modern philosophy and religion. And, and also Christianity, early Christianity, absorbed the teachings of Stoicism and virtue ethics that provided the ethical foundation of Christianity. So that's why in, in today in America, a lot of the emphasis on character development is usually intoned by more conservative people, more traditional people, traditionalist religion people who adhere to Christianity or traditional forms of religion, character, like, you know, like, oh, you got to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and you got to work hard and you got to be tough. And these are all kind of claims on, on what it means to develop your character, of course, in a very specific cultural way, but, but there's still nevertheless implications of how one develops character and how that's important to society at large. How do you become a more virtuous citizen? Whereas the more liberal, progressive spirituality focuses more on consciousness, right? Focuses more on the experiential, the phenomenological, the mindfulness awareness. But there's no, but in the way that mindfulness has been promoted, the mech mindfulness phenomena, there's it, it's stripped of the the traditional ethical and and and, and ethical not only means moral, but ethical in the traditional sense means ethos, which means character and agency. So ethical means the holistic notions of character development and, and becoming a more refined and virtuous person. These have been divorced. So before in pre-modern spirituality, character and consciousness, especially in the East and Buddhism, were promoted simultaneously. But now we have consciousness promoted by the mindfulness camp <clears throat> and character promoted by the traditional religious camp. And there's definitely kind of a disconnect there. And so I, I'm very passionate about developing both. I mean, I'll give, like, for example, I know so many people, yeah, after I came back from Nanda in Hawaii, you know, there's all these hippies and stuff. People can talk about spirituality and meditation. And I had an amazing experience playing kirtan and doing ayahuasca. And, you know, this was, you know, obviously you can probably tell it a hobby. But then people would do very, like, unethical things. They'd show, they would show up late. They would not call you back. They would flake out on things. They would lie about their income to get free food stamps from the government. And they would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't have to really be an ethical or virtuous person because I'm doing the spiritual thing. There's, and th that to me was almost like a schizophrenic disconnect. Like, it makes no sense to me. Um, and that's one thing, again, going back to Daifukuji, that I really appreciate about it is that everyone who comes there 
is really a person of very high and impeccable character. Um, even if they're not the most spiritually or internally nuanced people, they're just really, really good. Like, you know, the phrase salt of the earth, they're just really good, deeply good people. And you can feel that, good, that, that deep sense of goodness. And I, I feel like that needs to be promoted concurrently with mindfulness and consciousness. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. You know, that aspect of like the character aspects as a precursor to doing the more conscious and may, you know, may powerful practices um, is really important. I, I guess the question is, one, how would you implement that um, without scaring people away? You know, because I think people come to these Eastern traditions because they're disillusioned with their current traditions or the Western ones or, you know, the ones that are over, overly moralistic and they want that freedom to kind of explore where they want to explore. Um, versus being bound by this like sense of what is you know the right moral ethical thing to do all the time you know like oh no i just want to be like expand my mind dude and like understand the universe first and then i'll you know maybe come back to that but it does create what you're saying of this kind of schizophrenic um you know life where people have these amazing experiences this, this great unity they feel maybe they're maybe tripping on something they have um you know experience of their heart chakra bursting open but you know they treat everyone in their life you know as if they're not worth anything or, you know, they don't really like fulfill their commitments like you're, like you're saying. So, you know, maybe, and maybe that's just, that's sort of one of the results of our, of our spiritual hypermarket, right? You can kind of pick and choose what you want to do and expand your mind this way, but there's nothing holding it, holding it together to kind of bring the pieces together as there are in, you know, coming back to the traditions again. And that's what traditions do, do so well is that it's cohesive in that sense, right? So it's a yeah, it's an interesting place that we're where we are. I think it's very much a schism in modern philosophy, and a lot of philosophers who are called pre-modern revivalists have complained about this, and their entire their entire thesis. Like Alistair MacIntyre has a book called After Virtue. He talks about modernity. One of the characteristics of modernity is that it's it's value neutral. Everything is placed in terms of either dominated by money or or dominated by neutral conceptions of ethics there's no in terms of um like for example who was it? michael sandel's communitarianism really an articulation of pre-modern values talks about how in modern philosophy the right has completely taken over any notions of the good for example take any example any kind of liberal you know, leftist or progressive or libertarian social issue like legalizing drugs or legalizing prostitution it's like yeah sure it's consensual Consenting adults, good enough for me. It's right. But it, is it good? That, that conversation of is it good has been completely dominated by conservatives. So it does kind of scare people away. So I think, I think that the, for me, one of the keys to implementing this in a spiritual setting is not to have it necessarily, the development of character should not necessarily be transmitted through a traditional religion. But this, the very introducing the notion that character has to be developed along with consciousness, I think. Uh, should be important part of your like spiritual development plan, you know, and and figuring out how that's done, I think is different for everyone. I think whether it's like serving the community or volunteering somewhere or or just trying to, or, or even reading like literature on stoicism, for example. Like th these are these are kind of ways in which uh, character development can once again become an explicitly articulated part of spiritual development. That was part one of my talk with Ryan. Join us next time for a juicy conversation 
about the intersection of Me Too and sex scandals in spiritual communities and the implications for future guru student dynamics on a personal and community level. Until then, this has been the Guru's Dead Podcast. See you next time. I'm a philosopher, a lover of knowledge. Think deeply of life and follow your call. And reason is a gift that keeps on giving. For the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm a philosopher, a lover of truth. Look deeply within. The answers are in you. Wisdom is the gift that keeps on giving. For the unexamined life is not worth living. Though wisdom of the Stoics lead the ancient life of virtue. Empires may crumble, but suffering can't hurt you. A light was lit in the heart of the dark ages. From Aquinas to Eckhart and the Christian sages. The age of reason dawned a new season. The enlightenment, the sky's a limit. The rise of the humanities and the great artists. The renaissance mankind has restarted. No longer in the grips of theocracy. Rationality was the start of democracy. Science now explain the mysteries of the cosmos away from the days of Hades and Apollo. You see the point I'm making, said Francis Bacon. Our human minds are easily mistaken. Descartes' meditations, a new turn to man. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I'm a philosopher, a lover of knowledge. Think deeply of life and follow your call. And reason is the gift that keeps on giving. For the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm a philosopher, a lover of truth. Look deeply within. The answers are in you. Wisdom is a gift that keeps on giving. For the unexamined life is not worth living. Science was the only real method to test truth. Subjective metaphysics is a defective test tube. Such is a problem with induction, said Hume. Philosophy is serious with actual experience. But wait, said Kant. You see something is missing? The a priori categories of the intuition, like that of causality, number, time, and space. Synthetic a priori, and not a blank slate. Continue the story with Hegel's dialectic. History is evolving, so on to the next step. This was the rise of the German idealists who took it to reductionist empirical materialist Locke and Rousseau's social contract for change. Man is born free but everywhere he's in chains. Marxist das Kapital take down the bourgeois at an age of revolutions with Voltaire voila! I'm a philosopher a lover of knowledge. Think deeply of life and follow your call and reason is the gift that keeps on giving. For the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm a philosopher, a lover of truth Look deeply within, the answers are in you Wisdom is the gift that keeps on giving For the unexamined life is not worth living